Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Eugene Rogan, and as director of the Middle East Center, it is my tremendous pleasure to welcome you to the, wait for it, 45th George Antonius Memorial Lecture. Since the first Antonius given in 1976 by the great Islamic historian George Mectasy, this lecture has served as the culminating event for the Middle East Center's academic year. An opportunity to gather the broader Middle East Center family. I'm delighted to see so many of our current students here, and so many of their predecessors are alumni, veterans of many past Antonius lectures. We're honored to have so many of the Center's amazing advisory board members who are here for a meeting before today's lecture. We are so grateful to you for the support and the vote of confidence that you show us. It's great to welcome colleagues from across St. Anthony's College, not just from the Middle East Center, and across the great University of Oxford. Wonderful to welcome so many colleagues who contribute to our collective work in promoting knowledge and understanding of the Middle East in the university. And welcome to the community of the city of Oxford, and to those of you who will have come from further afield from London and from its suburbs, which as far as I can tell, extend as far as Paris. <laughs> Over the years, we have heard from some of the greatest scholars, thinkers, and creative artists from across our region and from across the world. Magdi Wahba and Mahmoud Manzalawi, Ibrahim Abulohod and Edward Said, Anthony Parsons and Hassan Twaini, Zaha Hadid and Rima Kalafhanegi, Noam Chomsky and Robert Fisk. There's 45 names to go through, I'll stop them. We have with us tonight several past Antonian speakers. I'm so glad to welcome Marilyn Booth and Joseph Sassoon, who gave their lectures in 2009 for Marilyn and 2013 for Joseph. We've had some illustrious cancellations over the years. Jeremy Bowen was called away in 2011 to cover that region-wide conflagration, better known as the Arab Uprising. And we lost uh, the opportunity to hear from Khoda Barakat, whose 2020 lecture was overtaken by the COVID-19 pandemic. Tonight's Antonius is particularly special, for it's being given by one of the Emeritus Fellows of the Middle East Center. There is a long tradition of Center Fellows coming back to give the Antonia, started by our founding fellow, Albert Hurani, who was actually the second Antonius lecturer. He spoke in 1977, a couple of years before he retired. Mustafa Bedoui gave my first Antonius, when I was a new faculty member here in 1992. Since then, we have seen Roger Owen return from Harvard to give the 1998 lecture, and Derek Hopwood, the 2001 Antonius. But it's been over two decades since we've had the honor of welcoming one of the center's own to the podium to give the Antonius. Of all my colleagues, past and present, I particularly like sharing Avi Shane. I'm never entirely in control of the proceedings, <laughs> and I'm never sure quite what will happen next. <laughs> I hope you're catching the frisson. 
Avi Schley moved to Oxford from Reading to take up the Alistair Buchan readership in 1987, when he was on the cusp of gaining global recognition as one of a handful of Israeli new historians following the publication of his monumental study, Collusion Across the Jordan. It would be no exaggeration to say that collusion propelled Professor Schlein from relative obscurity. I'd like a show of hands for those of you who might have read his earlier words, such as the EEC. Uh, for those of you too young to remember, that's the European Economic Community. <laughs> the EEC and the Mediterranean countries in 1976. British foreign secretaries since 1945. <laughs> or the United States and the Berlin blockade, which came out in 1978. Well, you can say even at that point, with a book a year, he was already prolific. But propelled from relative obscurity to become one of the most prominent British public intellectuals at work on Israel and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Since the publication of Collusion, Professor Schlein has published a string of influential books, ranging from works of synthesis, like his 1995 War and Peace in the Middle East, edited works like The War for Palestine, rewriting the history of 1948, and the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, and the research-based works that had truly established his enduring contribution. The Iron Wall, Israel and the Arab World, first issued in 2000, and later expanded and reissued in 2014, and The Lion of Jordan, King Hussein's Life in War and Peace, which came out in 2007. Tonight, we celebrate the publication of a new book by Avi Schlein, part autobiography, part family history, part essay on the contested identity of the Arab Jew. As it says on the front cover, Three Worlds is the best book that I've read all year. <laughs> and like you, I am impatient to hear from Professor Schlein, fellow of the British Academy, to tell us more. His title tonight, Zionism and the Jews of Iraq, a personal perspective. Would you please join me in giving a great George Antonius welcome to our Professor Rogan, for this very courteous introduction. <laughs> the last time I spoke at the Niji Center, when you introduced me, you were much more curt. You said, the speaker today is Professor Schley, so put on your seatbelts and prepare for the ride. True. <laughs> <laughs> uh, today, you are not going to need now, today is a very special occasion for two reasons. One is already mentioned by Eugene. It's the annual and prestigious Georgia Antonius Lecture. And it's a great honor and a privilege to be invited by the fellows of the Wiggy Center to give this year's George Antonius Lecture. I'm a great admirer of George Antonius. His 1938 book, the Arab Awakening generated an ongoing debate over the origins of Arab nationalism 
the significance of the Arab revolt of 1916 and the British machinations during and after World War I. For me, the book was an eye-opener about Britain's record as the holder of the mandate for Palestine. All my own archival research only confirmed and reinforced George Antonius's critique of British policy in Palestine. My work could be read as footnotes to the Arab origin. For me, the history of the British mandate in Palestine is the history of how Britain stole Palestine from the Palestinians and gave it to the Zionists. Maybe you do need your seatbelt. <laughs> anyway, I'm grateful for the, uh, the opportunity to pay homage to a great champion of justice for the Palestinians. Secondly, this is a family occasion. My own immediate family and the broader Middle East Center family. My wife, Gwyn, who is sitting in the front row, is both my harshest critic and the most constructive and supportive of partners. She helped me in countless ways during the four or five years that it took me to complete this modest memoir. Uh, I'm also grateful to our daughter Tamar, who is a publisher by profession, for her thoughtful suggestions, for her practical help, for the long conversations we had during the writing of this book. It was her idea to produce a podcast that helped both of us to understand better our Iraqi, Jewish, Israeli, British identity. As I write in the book, my father, after we moved to Israel, was completely silent. Amar's father never stops talking. <laughs> <laughs> Our story, to borrow a pretentious phrase from my friend Ella Shohat, the cultural critic, is the story of, quote, changing linguistic landscapes and the emotional cartography of displacement. Changing linguistic landscapes and the emotional cartography of displacement. An episode involving Tamar illustrates the changing linguistic landscapes of our lands. One day, I went to collect Tamar from kindergarten. And I overheard her say to a little girl, is once upon a time in Arabic. And the little girl said to her, that's fascinating. <laughs> Second, there is the wider Middle East Center family. First and foremost, there is Eugene Rogan, my benign boss, my colleague, and my friend. We started reading and commenting on each other's work when he was writing um, The Arabs, a history, which has since then become a classic, and I was working on my biography of King Hussein of Jordan. 
Eugene and I share a birthday, the 31st of October. We are both Halloween babies. <laughs> uh, I am 15 years older than Eugene, but he is much wiser than I am. And he has given me a lot of really good advice along the years, not least in connection with this particular book. Uh, then there are others in the Middle East Centre. There is the Middle East Centre librarian, Maria Luisa Langella, a very remarkable woman. She's Italian, she knows Hebrew and Arabic, and she wrote a PhD thesis in French on the literature of Iraqi Jews. She and the other librarian, Haifa Jajawi, my fellow Iraqi, dealt with my many requests promptly, efficiently, and with good cheer. So did Caroline Davis, and so did um, Debbie Asher, the, the archivist. Professor Neil Ketchley, Professor of Politics at the Middle East Centre, designed the maps. My deep appreciation goes to the whole of the team in one world, an excellent publishing house, and to the to um, Novin Brustdar and Juliet Maybe, the dynamic duo who own and run this excellent publishing house. But my very special thanks go to my editor, Sam Carter, um, and um, Sam, is Rita here? She is. Yeah. Sam <laughs> Carter, the editor, and his assistant, Rita Vakwas. They edited the manuscript from start to finish. Uh, not once, not twice, but three times. And they improved me immeasurably in content and style. But they had different priorities. Stan was only interested in the central character, and he wanted a short, concise text. And he said that any episode which isn't relevant directly to the central character should be left out. And if I followed his advice, the book will be about a quarter of its present. <laughs> <laughs> and Rita was not very interested in the central character but she was most interested and well informed about the political backdrop. So she was always asking me to elaborate on obscure things like the Iraqi Communist Party. <laughs> and I'm very happy to oblige. <laughs> you'll be relieved to know that this is the end. This concludes what I like to call the end of a jumble sale, a speech of the end of a jumble sale. This is when the headmaster thanks all those involved in organizing the jumbles. <laughs> I now want to say a few words about the book itself. The three words of the title are Baghdad, where I lived up to the age of five, Ramad Gan in Israel, where I lived from the age where I went to school from the age of 5 to 15, and London, where I went to school from the age of 15 to 18. 
The book only goes up to the age of 18, but with an epilogue. And Green, who read the manuscript chapter by chapter as I was writing it, told me one day when she read chapter five, I'm on chapter five and you haven't been born. <laughs> I hesitated before embarking on this project. I was, didn't know how to write about myself. It was easy to write about other people, about Tim Hussein, for example. But one day I read a wonderful book by Orid Bashkin, an Israeli historian at Chicago. The book is called New Babylonians, A History of the Jews in Modern Iraq. And it's a very informative book and a very empathetic book to the Jews of Iraq. And that gave me the idea of not just telling my story, but putting my story in the wider context of family history and putting the family history in the wider context of um, the Jewish community in Iraq and going even further afield to reflect about Iraqi history and British colonialism in Iraq after the First World War. Another source of inspiration was Ella Shohat, an Iraqi Israeli who is now an eminent professor at NYU. She published a book, a collection of essays under the title of The Arab Jew, Palestine and Arab and Other Displacements. Uh, the book is about the pivotal concept of the Arab Jew. She also draws parallels between the experience of the Palestinians of displacement from Palestine and the displacement of the Jews from Iraq. The notion of an Arab Jew is very controversial in Israel. Um, Israelis don't like the term. You can be a French Jew, an Italian Jew, a Romanian Jew, any kind of Jew. You can even be a German Jew despite the association with the Holocaust. But if you say I'm an Arab Jew, people immediately react against it. They say that's a contradiction in terms. That's an impossibility. It's an ontological impossibility. Either you are Jewish, in which case you cannot be an Arab, or you are an Arab, in which case you cannot be a Jew. Uh, but I beg to differ. I know of no better description of my initial identity than that of an Arab Jew. This brings me to the notion of identity. My academic discipline in this university is international relations. And international relations doesn't deal with individual identity. Um, and I very naively used to think we are given one identity and off we go. And that's all there is to it. But when I started writing this book, I realized that identity is a much more complex and fluid phenomenon. And moreover, we don't determine on our own our identity. Other forces outside in society shape our identity. And in my case, and are not necessarily benign. In my case, it was Zionism 
which try to erase my Arab identity and provenance and impose on me a new identity as a new Israeli with which I never ever felt comfortable. I used to be ashamed of being an Iraqi. In fact, I had an inferiority complex which um, defined my entire relationship with Israeli society. Today, I'm very proud to be an Iraqi. I'm very proud of my Iraqi and Arab origins. As a student of the Arab-Israeli conflict, I also see the advantage of having lived in an Arab society, in an Arab country. This enabled me to transcend national stereotypes. It enabled me to see Arabs not just as the enemy, but as a people, as a sensitive, uh, as sensitive and proud people. For my family, Muslim-Jewish coexistence was not an abstract idea. We experienced it. We touched it. <coughs> my mother, Masuda, Saida, for sure, is the main source of information for our life in Iraq and the hero of the memoir. Over the four or five years that uh, I took to write this book, I kept interviewing her relentlessly and taking detailed notes and I incorporated a lot of things that she told me into the narrative. She used to wax lyrical about the wonderful Muslim friends that we had in Baghdad. And one day I said to her, did we have any Zionist friends? And she looked at me as if it was a very strange question. And she said to me, no, Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. It's nothing to do with us. <laughs> The whole point of this book is to use my family history to illustrate a much bigger story, the story of the Jewish community in Baghdad in the first half of the 20th century, the exodus, or rather the uprooting of this community after the 1948 war. Now, individual experience over the exodus varied but for the community as a whole, the experience was like that of a tree being pulled up by the roots. The book seeks to recover and to reanimate a vibrant Jewish civilization of the Near East, a civilization that was blown away by, in the 20th century, by the cold winds of nationalism. I tried to achieve this by telling a family story rather than by through academic research. We were an upper middle class family. My father, Youssef, was a very successful merchant with a high social status. My mother, Saida, went to the Allianz School, the Allianz Israeli Universal, um, up to the age of 17, when she was forced to marry my father, who was a lot older than her. 
she received a very good education. Um, the teaching language, the, me the medium of teaching was French, but they also taught them English, Arabic, and Hebrew. And my mother died two years ago, uh, age 96, in Ramadan. If anyone dared suggest that she was dementing, she would be playing Archimedes' law in French. <laughs> <laughs> she remembered a visit by King Faisal I to her school, accompanied by the chief rabbi. Faisal I embraced the Jews in his efforts to build a new nation, one Iraqi nation, and the Jews made a contribution, major contribution at every level in the building of modern Iraq. Both of my parents had deep roots in Iraq and they loved the country. We were well integrated into Iraqi society. Of all the Jewish communities in the Middle East, the Iraqi one was the most prosperous, the most successful, and the best integrated into the local society. The book revolves around the contented life that we led in Baghdad. Um, alongside Muslims and Christians, the anguish and pain of displacement, the problems of adjusting to a new life in the promised land, my poor performance at school in Israel, and my parents' decision to send me to school in England, and the three mostly unhappy years that I spent in school in London, which for me was a second exile and a changing linguistic landscape. <laughs> in Baghdad, we were Arab Jews. We spoke Arabic and only Arabic at home. Our social customs and lifestyle were Arab. Our cuisine was exquisitely Middle Eastern. My parents' music was a very attractive blend of Jewish and Arabic music. We were Iraqis whose religion happened to be Judaism. We were a minority, one minority among many, one minority like the Yazidis, like the Chaldean Catholics, Assyrians, Armenians, Circassians, Turkmens, and so on. Iraq was a land of pluralism, of religious tolerance, and coexistence. Baghdad was known as the city of peace. It was also sometimes called the Jewish city. During the First World War, a third of the population of Iraq was Jewish. And during the Jewish high holidays, the shops and the markets closed. We had much more in common linguistically and culturally with our Iraqi compatriots than we had with our European co-religionists. We did not feel the slightest affinity with Zionism or Israel. Our migration to Zion was one of necessity not one of choice or ideological 
reference. We were forcibly conscripted into the Zionist project. Aliyah is a term that is used for migration through Israel and it means ascent. In our case, it was not Aliyah, we moved to Israel in Bordiarida, which is descent. Not only did we lose our wealth, our property, our possessions, but also our strong sense of identity as proud Iraqi Jews along the journey to the margins of Israeli society. Both of my grandmothers came with us to Israel. For them, it was deeply traumatic for me. And they spoke with great nostalgia about the old country. They spoke about Iraq as Jannam al-Allah, as the Garden of Eden. Psalm 137 talks about the Jewish um, exile in Babylon two and a half millennia ago. And it goes, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and there we wept as we women would Zion. For my grandmothers, it was the other way around. By the rivers of Zion, there we sat and there we wept when we remembered Babylon. My family story is thus the corrective to the Zionist master narrative of the history of the Middle East. This narrative posits endemic and pervasive Muslim and Arab anti-Semitism. Migration to Israel is attributed to the persecution and prejudice that the Jews are said to have encountered in their country of origin. One example of this Zionist narrative is Martin Gilbert, the Jewish-British historian and biographer of Churchill. His last book was called In the House of In Ishmael's House, a history of the Jews in Muslim lands. The book is ambitious. It covers 1400 years from the rise of Islam to the present, until he, he finished the book. But it is little more than a catalogue of Muslim hatred, hostility, and violence against Jews. The lens of the book is hopelessly Eurocentric. Anti-Semitism is said to be the fundamental underlying force that shaped Muslim-Jewish relations. By piling one horror story after another, Gilbert painted a completely misleading picture. He was psychologically hardwired to see um, anti-Semitism everywhere. The result is a distorted is a distortion of the history of Muslim-Jewish relations to serve a Zionist political agenda. To recap, the Zionist narrative views Arabs and Jews as congenitally incapable of dwelling together in peace and doomed to permanent discord and conflict. Zionism is based entirely on the experience of the Jews of Europe. It's a movement by European Jews for European Jews. Its outlook is completely Eurocentric. 
In Europe, the Jews were the other, the other. And therefore, Europe had a Jewish question in inverted commas. Anti-Semitism was a European malady, and from there it spread to the Middle East. Interestingly, there was no anti-Semitic literature in Arabic, so anti-Semitic literature had to be translated from European languages to Arabic, including Hitler's Mein Kampf. Iran did not have a Jewish question. In Iraq, the Jews did not live in ghettos, nor did they experience the violent repression, persecution, and genocide that marred European history. It was not without reason that Mark Mazar called his history of Europe in the 20th century dark continent. It took Europe much longer than the Arab world to accept the Jews as equal co-citizens. In Iraq, to be sure there were stresses and strains, but the overall picture was one of cosmopolitanism, peaceful coexistence, and fruitful interaction. The American Jewish historian Silo Baron coined the phrase the lacrimose version of Jewish history. This is Jewish history as a never-ending cycle of hatred, hostility, persecution, culminating in the Holocaust. I prepared for argument's sake to accept that the lacrimose version of Jewish history applies to Europe, but I um, strongly deny that this version of Jewish history applies or is relevant to the history of the Arab world, of Arab Jews. Uh, there is one episode which is always quoted uh, in support of the Zionist narrative, in support of the claim of pervasive Arab anti-Semitism, and that is the Farkut, the pogrom against the Jews in Iraq in the first and second of um, June 1941, when 165 Jews were killed. Um, there were attacks on Jewish houses, Jewish women were raped, there was a lot of looting of Jewish shops. It was a horrendous pogrom. But it wasn't representative or typical. It, it was a one-off uh, pogrom because of very special circumstances. And I believe that the person largely responsible for the Falkur were not anti-Semites, but it was the British ambassador, Sir Kidahan Cornwallis. And I give the reasons for this view in the book. Um, and my parents hated Sir Kinahan Cornwallis, but they couldn't pronounce his name, so they just <laughs> called him al kalbad al -Kalb. <laughs> Rashid Ali had uh, led, Rashid Ali al-Gailani led a nationalist revolt against the British and, and expelled the British from
of the country, and he was prime minister for a month. During that uh, period, during that month, there was no anti-Semitism, there was no persecution of the Jews. Yesterday there was a book launch uh, for this book in London, in Jones, and I met a very old um, Jew, uh, David Sassoon, who said to me he was in the Farkun, and he said there was no persecution of the Jews, and that Rashid Ali was anti-British, he wasn't pro-Nazi. And my mother confirmed this. She was 16 years old, and she, took she and her brothers took refuge in the American embassy, because the British embassy was not safe. <laughs> and she had a very leisurely month in the British, in the American embassy. Uh, but later on, in Israel, she was defined as a Holocaust survivor. <coughs> this was weaving back from the Holocaust to this pogrom, and this pogrom was treated the Pahud, as part of the um, Nazi plan for of the final solution. So my mother, who was very pragmatic, used to receive 6,000 shekels a year, that's about a thousand pounds, and she had a discount of 70% on her council tax. And uh, the Jewish custom has it that you don't sell the house of the dead for 11 months. And when, after, after my mother died, my sisters and I had to pay the full wife, 100% of the council tax, because we were not Holocaust survivors. <laughs> Um, my mother told me stories about the Talmud, and I relate them because most of the accounts are by men, and it was good to have uh, a female, a gender, a female account of the Talmud. And one of the stories was that about a very poor peasant, Iraqi peasant, um, who came for the loot and he stole from a Jewish store a big radio and he took it to his shack where there was no electricity and he banged on the radio and it didn't sing. So he banged hard on it and he said, come on, sing. You sing for the Jews, why don't you sing for us? <laughs> uh, my family did not leave Iraq because of a clash of cultures or religious intolerance. The driver of our displacement was political, not religious or cultural. We were caught in a crossfire between two secular national movements, Arab nationalism and Jewish nationalism or Zionism. There is a difference between nationalism and patriotism. For nationalism, you need an enemy. Nationalism is a divisive force. As Marilyn Monroe wrote in her scrapbook, the trouble with, with, the trouble with nationalism is that it stops us thinking. We also suffer the consequences of the systematic Zionist takeover of Palestine and the displacement of the Palestinians. In 1948, the Iraqi army participated in the war for Palestine. After the Arab defeat, there was a backlash against the Jews 
throughout the Middle East. Zionism was one of the main reasons for this backlash. Zionism gave the Jews a territorial base for the first time in two and a half millennia. It may be possible for the enemies of the Jews to identify them with the hated Zionist enemy and to call for their expulsion. What had been a pillar of Iraqi society was increasingly treated as a fifth column. Historically, the Zionist movement was not interested in the Jews of the East. They were regarded as inferior human material. But the Holocaust changed it by removing the main reservoir of people for the future Jewish state. After the birth of Israel, Aliyah became the top priority. The population was only 600,000 Jews, six, 600,000 Jews, 6,000 Jews had been killed in the war. That's 1% of the issue of the Jewish population. For the first time, the Jews of the East became a vital element in the Zionist project for building the Jewish state in Palestine. Zionism was the second most successful PR success story of the 20th century after the Beatles. <laughs> Zionism was a diplomatically sophisticated movement, but ruthless and expansionist at the same time. Its ultimate aim was an independent Jewish state over as much of the territory of Palestine as possible, with as few Arabs as possible inside its walls. The IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism says that it is anti-Semitic to describe the state of Israel as a racist project. I don't know how else to describe the state of Israel. Zionism moved in stages to realize its ultimate aim. Stage one was the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians in 1948, and stage two was bringing Jews from all four corners of the earth to take their place, including the inferior Jews of the Arab lands. This brings me to chapter seven of my book, Baghdad Bombshell. This is the most exclusive chapter in the book, in the one that is likely to draw most criticism and pushback from Zionist quarters. The background is popular hostility to the Jews and official persecution in the aftermath of the war for Palestine. As a result of persecution, there was a trickle of illegal Jewish, um, uh, there was illegal migration by Jews across the border to Iran and from there to Israel. In March 1950, the Iraqi government uh, passed the law, the denaturalization law, which said any Jew who wants to leave the country has a year to register, even they can leave. Uh, a year later, another second law was 
uh, passed by the government of Nuria Saeed and said any Jew who had relinquished his Iraqi um, citizenship forfeited all his rights as a citizen and all the property of the Jews and bank accounts were frozen. In 1950, there were around 130,000 Jews in Europe. By the end of 1952, only about 10,000 remained. All the rest ended up in Israel. Five bombs on Jewish sites helped to precipitate the mass exodus. There were persistent rumors among Iraqis, my family and relatives, and all the Iraqis in Israel, that Israel had a hand in these bombs, and that fueled the resentment of uh, the state of Israel. I was very interested in this story. I wanted to get to the bottom of it. In 1981-82, I spent um, a sabbatical year in Jerusalem, and I spent the whole year in the Israeli uh, state archives. And uh, one day I ordered the two files that said Iraq 1950, and I was told they are closed. This was 1982, and Israel has a 30-year rule copied from Britain. So I said to the archivist, um, um, it's time to release these uh, files. So he said, I'll check. And he uh, came back to me and he said, they can be released because there are some Mossad documents in the files. And I thought, aha! <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, why don't you remove the Mossad documents and leave the foreign ministry documents. He said, uh, I'll check. And the next day he came back to me and he said, no, we can't open these files at all. So I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I couldn't say that they were hiding something. I'm a historian, so I had to find evidence, hard evidence. And many, many years later, I came across this evidence. I was visiting my mother in Ramat Gan, and I met a very elderly Jew called Yaakov Kalkukri, who had been in the Zionist underground. And he told me about the, the things that they got up to, the forging of documents, the paying of bribes. And also, he told me that one of his colleagues, Yosef um, Basri, um, was responsible for three of the bombs, three out of the five. And he told me that his controller was a Mossad officer called Max Binet, who was based in Tehran. These were the days of the Shah, where there was a close covert relationship between Iran and Israel. So the controller gave, gave Basri the maps, the information, the instructions, and most importantly, the TNT. Uh, Basri was tried, convicted, and hanged. His last words were, long live the state of Israel. I said to Kapukli, everything you tell me fits in with what I know, but I need evidence. So eventually produced a one-page police report about the interrogation, about the activities of the Zionist underground, which named Basri. But it was a plain piece of paper with no letterhead, with no date, with no name. So I couldn't call it a smoking gun. 
But I took the investigation a bit further. There is a, a Iraqi journalist called Shamil Abdel Kader, and he wrote a book in Arabic which hasn't been translated on the Zionist underground in Iraq and the immigration of the Jews to Israel in 1950-51. And by a very lucky coincidence, Haifa Jajawi, um, the librarian, happened to be friends with Abdel Kader, and she mediated between us, and he confirmed that my police report is genuine, and that it sparked of a much larger, larger file, 258 pages filed on the interrogation of the Zionist underground's activities and bombs in, in Baghdad. So I no longer have any doubt. Israel was involved in the bombing of Jewish sites in Baghdad, which precipitated the exodus. It is not part of my argument that this was the main reason for the exodus, but it's one factor that needs to be taken into account. I was going to go on and say this is not a one-off thing, but it's a pattern of false flag operations, and another one was the Lavon affair in 1954 in Cairo, when the same Mossad officer, Max Binet, uh, was, was the, in charge of the spy ring, which was rounded up, and he committed suicide in prison. Uh, I now come to the epilogue of the book. The epilogue revolves is mostly about my time in the IDF between 1964 and 66. Uh, which was the high point of my identification with the Zionist project. I served loyally and proudly in the idea because in my time it was true to its name, which was the Israel Defense Force. But after I left, a year after I left, uh, to become a history student at Cambridge, Everything changed, and it's not because I had left the idea, <laughs> but because of the June 1967 war, the idea of my little army was transformed into the brutal police force of a brutal colonial army. And that's the beginning of my disenchantment with the state of Israel. My memoir. Is a revisionist track, an alternative history, a challenge to the Zionist narrative about the Jews of the Arab lands. It also suggests that the history of Muslim Jewish relations in Iran has been distorted at the service of Zionist propaganda. My experience, that of my family, that of the whole Jewish community in Iran, suggests that there is nothing inevitable or preordained about Arab-Jewish antagonism. The old world of Iraq, the Jannah Mal'Allah of my grandmothers, has <coughs> been rebuilt. But remembering the past 
can help us envisage a better future. Zionism has all but destroyed the identity of the Arab Jew, but it has left enough of a remnant to warrant a little optimism about the future. One thing is certain, without reviving or reimagining the kind of religious tolerance and civilized dialogue between Jews and Arabs uh, that prevailed in Iraq before the emergence of the State of Israel, we will not, we'll not be able to go past the present and past. Thank you for listening. <laughs>
things that well, would surprise all of us if you look through the books. You've got to see what a dish Avi was. I mean, <laughs> the picture of you with your grandmother in uniform will make anyone sleep. <laughs> Let alone the young Baghdadi prince, age what, two, three, sitting there dressed in a bow tie at his finery to just melt any grandmother's heart. So there was definitely there aspects of you there in the most positive sense that I wouldn't have recognized either Avi. What a dish. <laughs> Now, I think that I probably raised your expectations unduly. You will have found that in our exchanges tonight, that Professor Schleim and I have not shown any particular fireworks. That's because those usually take place in the question and answer period. And I could tell you stories about Avi Cherry Lee, where he found the questions were far more to his liking and began to answer on my behalf. <laughs> <laughs> Until I found myself asking the audience if there are any further questions for Professor Schleiden. <laughs> and other such hijinks that are not to be part of tonight's celebration because, as is the tradition with the Antonius, rather than open the floor to your questions to us, we will all break from here to go and share a drink together and corner our speaker to try and put the questions directly to him face to face over a glass of something bubbly. Before we do so, there will be a few of you who managed to secure a copy of the book before they all sold out. So what I'd like to ask of you is I'm going to just quickly show Avi to the table outside the lecture theater. If you stay in your seats for just one second, so I can get him safely ensconced there, and then let you mob him from the other side of the table. Avi, I'll bring you a glass of sparkling wine to see you through the ordeal of signing all these books. But before I take Avi Shane away, I just think you will agree with me that he has set an ungodly challenge for our 46th Antonius lecturer. Please give the warmest thanks. Yeah.